Welcome to the RPG Bot Podcast. As a legendary action, I'd like to introduce Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And also Ash Eli. Hello. All right. And I'm Randall James. Tyler, what is happening? Today, we're going to talk about complex creatures. So if you are a dungeon master, a game master, uh, or, you know, players will benefit from this too, but we're going to talk about how these creatures work at the table and how you can make them work for you without bogging down your game and the mechanics of running a creature that essentially has hundreds of buttons to push. Yeah, no, I have an uh, alternate title. Legendary creatures and the mundane DNs that drive them. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I, think, I think you've done better. I think you've done better. Uh, all right. <laughs> Legendary titles and the mundane writers. That... <laughs> I think we know who's not the complex creature in this podcast. Oh, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of simple creatures, <laughs> so so let's first ask the question: Like, why are these creatures hard to deal with? The short answer is. These creatures are complicated, and dungeon masters, game masters already have enough things to worry about. And all of a sudden, on top of all of the other things that you need to do while running the game, you're now going to have this fight where you've got this creature that's got like, oh, it's got 10 different types of actions. And it's got like multiple resource pools that I've got to track. And then it's got a like, oh, what do you mean it takes three turns? Oh, my goodness. Okay, what are we going to do? Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about those creatures. We're going to give you the tools to run them effectively without, like, forgetting all the things and without getting overstressed. Like, it's good. It's going to be good. We're going to make this work for you. So the first question you want to ask yourself when you're looking at a creature is, how complex is this creature? Now, depending on what game you're playing, like, there, there's going to be a range of complexity depending on what the thing is. So, like, your very, very basic creatures in D&D or Pathfinder or whatever, it's going to be your, your goblins in Star Wars, it's your stormtrooper. It's like, okay, it's got hit points, it's got one attack, that's all, that's all I need to worry about. Like, it can do all the things that creature can do. It can, like, walk around and maybe talk and do those things. But in terms of, like, we're in a fight, we're in initiative, it's one button is attack and maybe deal damage. So that's your basic low-complexity creature. Now, your, your moderate complexity creature, medium, whatever, um, it might have a couple of special abilities that you're going to have to worry about. So uh, Displacer Beasts are a good example. They're basically just, here's this creature. It has hit points, it moves, it attacks, and then has this one thing, which is the weird like displacement effect. And that's its one gimmick that makes it slightly more complicated. Yeah, I think another great example is like the crocodile, or even better, the giant crocodile. <laughs> where right you have to think about what you're going to do because you're going to bite when you bite you might also grapple once you grapple you might drown right and so you have a strategy there's a there's a row of things that you're going to do but the amount of state you have to track is fairly simple my state is either is someone in my mouth or is no one in my mouth and if no one's in my mouth you know let's kick this up a notch you also have to keep in mind that different creatures will have different priorities um so a moderate a medium one will uh, like a medium complexity creature like a crocodile is really only concerned with food survival and that's kind of it um something else like 
uh, a drow, let's say, a drow fighter that has some specific types of like traps or something like that, is going to have a different agenda and may be able to strategize a bit more. It won't just use brute force. It'll change its strategy based on the situation, how many people it's facing, you know, what its health is, how many resources it's expended. A crocodile is not going to think about any of those things. Like Randall said, it's going to be like, is it in my mouth? No, then I'm going to get something in my mouth. now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how I think about combat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remind me never to spar with you, but anyway. So I, I have a question. So we're developing this low medium. I bet next we're going to go to high, but I don't want to jump there right quick. How do you think about managing uh, damage and condition resistances and immunities? And I ask this because as a DM, I'm constantly like in combat remembering like, oh, I missed that that was bludgeoning damage and they're resistant to bludgeoning damage. Like, I probably should have given a hint that, like, oh, it doesn't seem super effective. And so now, like, halfway through a turn, I'm like, hey, by the way, you noticed this half the round ago. <laughs> yeah, that happens to me more than I care to admit. Because uh, a lot of times, like, I'll just pull in a monster. I'll kind of glance at it, get a sense of it. And then halfway down the line, I'll be like, oh, I'll, I'll be like, why is this creature going down like a punk? And I'll look, <laughs> I'll be like, oh, because he's supposed to be immune to regular attacks. That's why um, I think <laughs> that uh, maybe this isn't a perfect solution, but definitely highlight certain things that you don't want to forget about. Or uh, the key to most of running these encounters is write stuff down. Absolutely. Write it down because <laughs> it will stick better than if you just look at something. Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, you know, looking ahead in the show notes we're going to have a conversation about writing it down. So maybe, maybe we shouldn't jump to it just yet, but <laughs> no, no, but, I know that's why I'm just, I'm prepping for what we're eventually going to be talking about. Perfect. Uh, no, no, exactly. Perfect. Well, but, but I, I will ask guys, uh, for an answer to that question. Do you, do you see this as like a kind of a medium complexity? Because it isn't that it impacts. It isn't that the actions or managing the action economy is difficult in this case. It's just literally, there's a lot to keep up with as you're, as you're playing through. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, these, these bands, bars, measures, whatever, it's, it's not like there's some specific step where you say like, yes, you have checked this many boxes. It is now medium complexity. Like this is, this is very much fuzzy. Like you can look at this and say like this, this creature has so many different things that are complicated. Like this feels kind of medium or this feels kind of high complexity and like make that judgment yourself. There's no hard and fast rule, but damage resistances, intelligent creatures definitely up the complexity. Like you guys said, I think also when we're talking about levels of complexity, it also just kind of depends on the DM that's running it. Um, sometimes, uh, what might be hard for a DM to track is like, for instance, the Medusa is hard for me to sometimes track because it has the petrifying gaze. And that's something that just after it goes off, if they fail, you have to remember, okay, it comes back to their turn. They have to save against it. <laughs> sometimes I will forget to do that. <laughs> so, uh, and that really hampers the Medusa quite significantly because it's one of their key features. Um, so it's, it, it really just kind of depends on the kind of DM you are. Like I know that it, one of the things that I'm trying to get better about is I have a tendency to just take my monsters and shove them at the players <laughs> and then they just fight until they die, which is, eh, it's one way to do it, but it's not the most interesting way to fight. And I think there are better ways to run fights for sure. 
and it's something that I have gotten better at. Um, and I know that for me also, like the intelligence of the character might make the complexity, like I said, the intelligence of the character might make things more complex. Cause like, how do you run a character that's smarter than you? Yeah. Carefully. <laughs> am I writing things down? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and like some of the most complex creatures that we play, right? They're spellcasters where they have a huge list of spells. So I think at this point we're kind of talking about the high complexity creatures, right? Yeah. Um, spellcasters with tons of spells, legendary actions, legendary resistances. You know, how, you know, what can we do? We can say, well, there's spell slots. You have your three legendary resistances. You have something that recharges. So I need to remember to roll a die to see if it recharged or not. Um, and I have my legendary actions that I can burn between turns. And then in the actual turn, I've got like a multi-attack. So I have five different pools that I need to be managing all of these resources. And if you aren't burning all of them on the regular basis, uh, you're not giving the full experience that creature is meant to give as a complex creature for your party. Absolutely. And using that, like using the creature's capabilities to its fullest is absolutely part of how the game is expected to be played. So D&D and Pathfinder have that strictly defined challenge rating system, and it's expected that creatures will be played to maximum effect to hit that CR. The Archmage in the 5e Monster Manual good example like if you look at the stats if you don't know how to use the creature as intended like it's it's gonna go down real easy they're like cr12 i want to say and it's a 17th level wizard so like that guy can do some damage but cr12 pretty low um the expectation is that the archmage will upcast cone of cold three times using their highest level spell slots but if you don't like sit down and think about it and be like, okay, how is this worked out in the CR? What are they expecting me to do here? Um, you're going to go in and be like, okay, uh, time stop, maybe cone of cold once. Uh, and then he gets scared and teleports away. Yeah. With spellcasters, you really have to, it's not a, I don't think you can just bring in a spellcaster unprepared and just be like, this is a spellcaster now, unless it's like a low level spellcaster, but with like <laughs> an arc mage or something. Um, you really have to strategize because uh, archmages are intelligent. They're not going to use any, they're going to use their spells carefully. And sometimes the best option is not to cast a damaging spell. Sometimes it's to switch your buffing spells. So, for example, like uh, it, it says that they cast stone skin on themselves before a fight happens, obviously. And how do they know a fight happens? Because they have 20 intelligence. <laughs> they're going to know that a fight is going to happen. Um, and uh, uh, if the party is not really, they don't have a lot of frontline fighters that do a lot of non-magic damage, and the main target, the main threats are the casters uh, who are doing, like, elemental damage, then if you want to play uh, Archimage at top of its intelligence, time stop, switch uh, the stone skin to Globe of Invulnerability, chip put on Fire Shield, and then back into combat with Cone of Cold. So that's just a way that you can really <laughs> mess with your players and just really play play mages at the top of their intelligence. Like they're the hard I think mages are the hardest ones uh to run, especially since as a DM you don't get like as a like as a player, wizards are still a challenge, but you you're with that character for levels, you get your power slowly. You're able to suss out what's useful, what's not so useful. DM just is given a stat sheet, and they're like, I have to learn everything. 
right now. <laughs> um, so if you're going to play a spellcaster, especially one that has legendary actions or lair actions or both, or you want to go the full Monty, spellcaster, lair actions, uh, legendary actions, and phases. Yeah. <laughs> Do your research. Uh-huh. Work up to that. I mentioned this because this episode came in a timely fashion because the next boss that my players is going to fight is that. So oh. I have to be ready. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about let's talk about planning for these creatures because I, yeah. I think we've laid that out pretty well. The secret to surviving this is planning. Like yeah. plan, write it down. Um, so we we've referenced uh, making tactical decisions for the for various creatures several times already. Um, if you want a shortcut for figuring out your creatures' tactics, go look up Keith Almond's work. The monsters know what they're doing. We had a podcast episode with him a while ago. His website is still going and still fantastic. Strongly recommend it. So like. If you're using a creature that Keith has covered, the work is done for you. If you're not using a creature that Keith has covered, look at his work anyways. Inspiration, be like, okay, this is how Keith would do it. I'm going to borrow his ideas because his ideas are really good. Yeah, and uh, I recently read his his book, The Monsters Know What They're Doing. He's got two of them now. I think he's got one for players and two for DMs. Um, but... Uh, really well done he he goes through all of the monsters and tells you how to run them and in case anybody was wondering that little strategy i made for the archmage i didn't come with that up with that i'm not that smart <laughs> that was keith Amon. he mm-hmm. came up with that strategy and it's really well done and he talks about how each each um each monster needs to be played at the top of his intelligence and each monster has different ways that they approach combat and what their goals are so it's definitely good if you're just like, I'm not that intelligent, what do I do? That's a good starting point. No, perfect. And I think as you're planning, recognize that it isn't always just the complexity of the creature. Like we kind of gave this low, medium, high. It's also the complexity of the entire encounter overall. So sometimes you get groups of creatures that are coming together where, you know, I've got a panther that's going to run and it's going to jump on me and, uh, you know, knock me prone and take me out of the fight for a round because I'm going to have to get up and lose half my movement. And meanwhile, there's an archer like sitting in the background, like, pegging everybody who's actually still up while the panther is, panther is mauling people. Like, there can be significant complexity in having a bunch of medium complexity creatures brought together to fight the party. Because at that point, it still goes to what we were talking about before, managing the action economy. And you, you know, now instead of one creature having all of these pools of resources, what you're doing is you're saying, well, I have several creatures. Each of them have pools of resources that are ultimately going to impact how my party experiences this encounter. Yeah, and there's other things that can add to the complexity of the encounter too. So you have all the creatures, you also have the terrain. If there's any traps, uh, weather can be a thing. Like, ah, you've decided that it's, uh, there's crazy fog blowing in. How does that affect things? Or the room is flooding while you're fighting these skeletons. So like, you can just pile more and more complexity into encounters. The more complex your encounter is, the more important it is for you to be prepared for it. Yeah, so let's, let's run down a few of the things that you should be planning when we say plan ahead. Uh, one is knowing the rules. You know, it's a, it's a huge <laughs> game. There's a ton of rules in, in you know, any system you might be playing, but really focusing on, on, let's say, 5e and PF2, right? If you're playing a creature that can inflict status effects, for instance, 
know the rules for those status effects, know the common things that would allow you or allow the players to remove those status effects. Um, think about how concentration is going to impact uh, maybe spells that your caster might be casting, and what does that mean for what they might do next? Because you you could develop a whole strategy of like, oh, I'm going to do this thing, then I'm going to do B, and then I'm going to do C. And your player is like, well, um, actually, because you cast A a second ago, <laughs> are you dropping that so you can? It's like, ah, my plan's ruined. Um, so having like understanding the rules and what the impact are going to be for the creatures you're bringing into combat, I think is the number one critical thing. From there, highlighting, and I think Ash said it right, highlighting the basically the things you know you're going to miss. So if it's the resistances and immunities. You know, capture that in a big way, big, bold letters. Have a system, you know, whether it's a table that you just punch up right quick in Excel and you pop over to it, whether it's literally highlighting in the book so you can look for, you know, you know, pinks and greens and yellows and say, okay, look, yeah, no, you're good. Uh, what you've done totally works, or actually that's a complete failure. I'm sorry, player. I'm not really sorry, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the thing that I think that a lot of DMs uh, neglect when they're prepping for encounters is look at your player's sheets, too. Don't just look at the monster sheets. Don't just look at the map and all of that. Look at your players' sheets. See what they, you think that they are good at and what they're not so good at. Um, and especially, like, if, if you're playing, like, creatures that run on instinct and aren't very bright, it doesn't really matter. Um, unless it's, like, they're going to, like, like, let's say you run a Yeti. The Yeti's going to pick on the one that looks the weakest, even if they're not, like, ooh, this Warlock looks pretty weak and tasty, even though it's like, oh, crap, this Warlock's the most powerful one. <laughs> um, but uh, creatures like Krakens, Dragons, uh, really intelligent or wise creatures who maybe even know your party will be able to quickly suss out what everybody's strengths and weaknesses are. And one of the ways you can play a creature of high intelligence is just they just know everybody's stats. They just know what they're capable of, what they're good at, what they're not so good at, and they can plan accordingly. So if you want to play your creatures at the top of the intelligence, you got to cheat a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know I don't have 20 intelligence or wisdom, so yeah, I'm yeah. going to have to cheat a little bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think talking about the intelligence of the creatures that you're coming, uh, plan contingencies for those creatures as they would with their intelligence. Um, so I know we talked about in a previous episode, we'll have a link in the show notes, the idea of like, if, if they're not trapped and they're intelligent enough to value their life, let them run away. But how are they going to run away? Uh, because, you know, if, if somebody has, you know, an 80 foot casting and your creature has five HP left, you can't just have them like, oh, I'm just going to sprint. You know, I'm, I'm going to dash for a turn and get out of range. No, I'm going to chase you down and I'm going to shoot you. And then the creature's dead. And that's sad, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Depends on who you ask. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> this is why the spell contingency is a thing, and you should use it. <laughs> yeah, and if you can get contingency on a character, get contingency on your character. Okay, and so remind folks at home, what does contingency do for us? So contingency, is a, it, it uh, requires two spell slots. So in conjunction with you casting the spell, it, you cast a different spell that goes off at a certain trigger. So let's say you are reduced to to like 30 hit points you immediately cast teleport on yourself uh so that is a contingency that you can do or a person who's just like i'm going to take everybody with me as soon as they're reduced to five hit points they cast fireball center on themselves um <laughs> so that is also a way you can do that as well um or uh just think of other ways that you can get people out of there uh uh clone is a very good way of doing it i think that's what it's called clone yeah 
you create a duplicate of yourself some other place. So if you die, you just resurrect it. You're a clone. <laughs> All right. There's a real like ship of Theseus conversation that we have to have here, but I'm going to, in the spirit, you know, the interest of time, I'm going to hit pause. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in, in terms of more practical contingencies beyond just the spell contingency, um, Ash, you hit on tactics for the Archmage that Keith Allman wrote. So that was a great example of having like, here is plan A, here is my contingency plan. So plan A is Archmage goes into a fight with stone skin run. So that's resistant to resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, slashing damage, except from adamantine weapons. So very good defense if you're getting beaten on by fighters and stuff. Um, if your primary threat is casters, the backup plan is time stop, globe of invulnerability, fire shield and like that gives you some defenses against spellcasters so like that is a great example of a backup plan and then if that fails archmage teleports away yeah <clears throat> have a plan a have a plan b have a plan c uh especially for characters that like if you especially for bosses like a lot of people dms complain about ah oh, my party killed my big bad <clears throat> way too quickly well then you didn't plan well enough Big bad evil guy is always going to have an exit strategy. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think if you're still gaining experience running like big bads, if you're gaining experience running these creatures that have legendary actions and you're like, ah, you know, I'm looking at CR, but I just don't know. I think a very reasonable contingency to have in your back pocket is that henchmen show up. Right. So think of it as almost a phase, even though, you know, maybe that creature doesn't explicitly have like a phase in the fight. Your players can have the experience of like, yeah, we were really getting after them. And then right when we were getting after them, like the henchman came in, you know, chucked him, you know, two health potions. He double fisted them threw the glass at us. <laughs> and then we went back to combat with the henchman in the mix. You know, what that's doing for you as a DM is you were like, hey, I wasn't sure if this was going to be too hard or not. Uh, and it looks like it's going to be harder than I expected. So I'm going to bring in help. I'm going to move the action economy back in my favor. And now we can party on. Another thing you can do um, that leads into contingencies a little bit, and you can do this with any creature. Uh, Matt Koval did a video on this. He created what are called villain actions, which are similar to legendary actions. But they can't, rather than legendary actions, they're only done once or maybe twice in a fight, and they are triggered by certain things. So, for instance, a boss might be reduced to 50% health. And at 50% health, they immediately summon, like, I don't know, golems or something to, like, assist them. Uh, or, you know, they teleport and throw a fireball where they, were, where, they, where they were previously. Something like that. Just a one-off thing. It doesn't even have to make sense mechanically. It's just like, uh, oh, things are getting real now. Um, I would say use it sparingly, but it's also something that you can do to sort of take the characters off their sort of throw the characters off balance. Yeah, I don't, uh, they have a Kickstarter that just wrapped up recently for their for a monster book called Flea Mortals where they've like codified a bunch of that. I um you should try and get them on the podcast. That would be fun. Yeah. No, yeah. I think you'd be a great guest. If you're out there listening, call us. <laughs> Please don't call us or <laughs> email us. We answer those. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so we're talking about planning ahead, and, and some of the things that we talked about are, one, know the rules that are likely to impact this, understand the actions that are available to you, have contingencies, so have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, 
and think about what those might be. Uh, we talked a little bit about the the terrain, but I think it's bringing up one more time. Like literally, if you're fighting in a lava pool where there's literally magma flying around, that's going to impact the fight differently than say, you know, if you're on a big grassy field. Um, if there's lots of places to hide and you have a creature who that's probably part of their plan is to, you know, take the hide action and then use that to deal extra damage. Um, that's much different than being in a super well-lit room. So think about how the train's going to impact things. Uh, write all of these things down because in the middle of running the game, you're thinking it's like, oh, I studied, I studied, I studied. Um, we've all taken tests. We know better, right? <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, I, I spent like a week getting ready for this. And you walk in, you see it on paper, and you're like, I don't, what are these symbols? This is Greek to me. What class? This, it's Greek? Really? How did I get here? <laughs> so write it down so that when you're executing, you have those notes. And here's what's going to happen. Having it written down, having it in front of you is going to make you more comfortable, which is going to make you seem like you're more in control, which is going to make your creatures feel like they're more in control, which is going to terrify the party. Yeah, just to, just to add on to what Randall's saying, like, uh, right, even just the act of writing things down, even if you don't consult it later, helps put it in your memory more because you're taking the act to write it down. Uh, and also to relate to Randall about how fighting a lava pit is different from fighting a grassy field. Keep in mind that certain monsters, I mean, pretty much every monster, every NPC, every monster is going to, if they get to pick the field, they're going to pick the field that is most advantageous to them. So uh, a goblin part raiding party is probably not going to fight your party in a field that has no hiding spots. Um, because uh, <laughs> goblin's ideal is fire, hide. Fire, hide. Fire, move, hide. So the best spot is like uh, a place with a lot of rocks or a place that has a lot of trees. Um, because, and if, if it doesn't matter if there are goblins in the area, if your party is on a field that has no obstructions of line of sight, goblins aren't going to attack because it's not advantageous to them. Um, unless they're caught off guard. If the party catches them, that's a different story. Then the party's picking the field. But if your characters get the opportunity to pick a field, Pick one that suits their advantages, not their disadvantage. The encounter at the beginning of Lost Minds of Vandelver, which I, I know we've brought up a couple of times recently, it's two goblins on a ridge right above a road. They've blocked the road with the dead horse, and there's bushes that they're hiding. So, like, that is perfect, perfect goblin ambush situation. Like, they have, they have concealment in the bushes that they can hide in repeatedly. There's a forest right behind them, so if the players get up in their faces, they can just run back to the forest. They've got plenty of places to hide. So, like, that is ideal goblin situation for them to fight in. Uh, if the goblins were standing in the middle of the road, bad situation for the goblins. Time to run away. Yeah, it's also why if you play goblins at the top of their intelligence in Lost Minds of Fandelberg, you're probably going to TPK your party because it's their first <laughs> session and they don't know how to handle it. <laughs> yeah, when we had Keith on, uh, if I remember right, his line about goblins was goblins have massive error bars because they can be like absolute easy pushovers or they can just wreck your party depending on how yep. well their hiding tactics go. Mm -hmm. Speaking of being in combat, let's talk about what happens when we actually get into combat. Like Initiative is rolled. You have your plan. You have plan A, you have plan B, you have plan C, and you have a back, like you have your escape plan. Like you've written this all down. You've, you've uh, picked where this encounter is going to happen. Like you've got your, your cool uh, square box room that you're going to fight in. There's cover. 
there's spinning knives in corners or whatever there's a a pool of boiling blood in the middle and we're just going to hope that the players don't throw the lich into that yeah it's it's best (laughs) please don't Uh, jerks please (laughs) don't throw my big bad evil guy in the hole Please don't do that. <laughs> why, why are you aggressively hugging her? Please. Yeah. <laughs> I, our, our party did that to Randall a couple of weeks ago. It was good. Oh, um, buddy. Yeah, that, that's part of your plan. Like, you, you have your terrain. You know what all the things in the room do. And, uh, you know, players are still going to surprise you. But he had the plan for what that thing did. It's just we used it instead of him. Mm. <laughs> so initiative is rolled. Now what do we do? Well, <laughs> it kind of depends on the creature, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Like I said, there may be not a lot for you to track. There may be a lot for you to track. Um, and it, a lot can also just be like a lot of monsters to track. So like a goblin encounter in their lair could be just as complicated as an archmage in his tower. It really just kind of depends on how you run it. Um, <clears throat> but you do have to keep in mind, you know, their actions legendary actions resources very important because the resources a lot of a lot of times i think uh dms think that the only resource that really matters for for a creature is their hp that is a major resource for sure but also keep in mind that a wizard is useless without his spells and not even just like don't wait for the sorcerer to run out of spell slots that it it once he runs out of spell slots he is in a no win situation so a sorcerer will will get out of there by the time he goes through about a little bit more than half his slots um because at that point it's a it's a losing battle at this point the wizards are not good for battles of attrition they're good at taking people out quickly um same for uh certain goblins and stuff like if even a few of their number die or run away they're gonna run because now they don't have a numbers advantage no, I, I think that makes perfect sense. I want to use something as a model. So I think if, if we look at the 5e Lich, I think we can specifically use this to have a conversation about how you would run this creature. In particular, what I want to call out is, first of all, just tracking everything that we can do. All right. So we talked about planning ahead. We talked about writing it down. I think this is a case where it's really important to write it down. Uh, so looking at this creature, we have three times per day a legendary resistance. So effectively for the encounter, I get to use this three times and that's it, right? We're not gonna have an encounter that's gonna span over two days. We're at that point, we're just gonna call it a new encounter. I hope maybe you run <laughs> combat differently than I do. Maybe your party is much more patient than mine are. Um, you have your spell casting where you have cantrips, you have your consumables, and these are similar, right? Like it's basically, these are the spell slots you get for the encounter. And so you can imagine writing it up um, whether you do this electronically, whether you do it on paper, I always tend to have just pencil and paper sitting next to me, even though I'm doing everything else digitally. This is the one thing I'm actually marking this way. And as I burn these things that are effectively once per encounter, I'm, you know, strike it out, strike it out, strike it out. So I can say, well, how many third level spell slots have I used? I've used two of them. That means I have one left. Is there anything here interesting? No? Okay, let's party on. Finally, and I think this is the important one because it's so easy to lose track of it your legendary actions that you're getting essentially, you know, three per round. The reality is if you waste that, if you, if the round comes back around and you haven't burnt them yet, 
you're going to be sad and you're not actually giving the full experience of fighting this creature to the party. So this is where I'll make marks, like big old line, and I've got my bubbles for my legendary actions. And as I consume them, I'm marking them down and I'm watching where we are in the round to make sure I'm not about to lap the round before I get the opportunity to burn them. Yeah, writing it down, very, very great way to keep track of all these things because on complicated creatures like the Lich, it, it's too much to hold in your head. Like You may have a very, very good memory and like you might feel fine. Like I'm going to go through this combat. We're going to do this combat. It will begin. It will happen it will end and during that time i can manage these things but if you get distracted if you have to step away from the table like all that stuff you've been having rattle around in your head gone completely forgotten how many spell slots did you use don't know five or six eh just write it down you need to write it down especially since as a dm you're also keeping track like you're not just keeping track of the lit you're keeping track of players how they're doing and all the other stuff and it's easy to just forget a thing um so writing down every slot that you use um making sure that you track all of its resources and that you're using your legendary actions every turn because ultimately it's not just about like you know i want to beat my players it's about like randall said giving this character its full potential, which makes the fight more epic for your players. And as far as Lich goes, it, I know that the Lich has so many spells. <laughs> um, but a good way to look at it is prioritize things. Think about what is most useful. So, for instance, if we take a look at the 8th level spells, they only have one slot that they can use, but they have two spells, Dominate Monster and Power Word Stun. Uh, if your party has a low, cur- low wisdom uh, fighter or paladin, maybe not a paladin, paladin would be a bad idea, um, <laughs> but uh, a low wisdom fighter or something that can dish out a lot of damage, maybe dominate monster is really good uh, for him to use. Or if they have like a really powerful, you know, beast companion or something, that would be good to use. Uh, otherwise, go with power words done. Because it's just all around, will be good no matter what. Um, and you also want to prioritize things that like um, uh, will give your give your character an out. So maybe you want to prioritize plane shift over finger of death, or save. Maybe you could use your eighth level slot for that if things are looking hairy. So just you're gonna have to constantly. It's not just about prepping. You have to constantly analyze how the fight is going, and you have to have like a tree system in your head i know this is a lot but tree, tree <laughs> system it's like is the party doing x yes or no if yes use y if no use z something like that um so it's especially with boss monsters like the lich you can't just go into it being like i'm just gonna wing it because then mm-hmm. it's gonna be a disappointing encounter well and, and i think nine times out of ten your party is just gonna kill the creature and you're like oh you know how why is the Lich a, a CR21 creature? It was so easy for my level 12 party to kill. It's like, well, uh, you, uh, did, did you? <laughs> I didn't use any legendary actions. Yeah, did you <laughs> use all of the spells that deal damage and none of the debuffs? Did you only yeah, target Yeah, I started the... from level 1 and went up to level 9, like you're supposed to, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you target one creature, like one of the players that has like a, something that gives them magic resistance, or like, you know, a, a 
a barbarian that just has a, a fountain of health and none, no, none of the casters or any of the people <laughs> that are a bigger threat to your lich, then yeah, he's going to die like a punk because you're yeah. prioritizing <laughs> the wrong targets. We actually forgot that uh, he had bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing immunity for non-magical attacks. So yeah, so the bar- <laughs> so the barbarian, unless he has a, a magical axe, he, he's going to be nothing to him. <laughs> in, in the barbarian's defense, by the time the barbarian gets here, hopefully, he actually has something like a magical axe. Yeah. <laughs> also, but, yeah, I think barbarian. It's only berserkers that are immune to charm effects, right? When they're raging, or is yeah. it all barbarians? Then just berserkers. Use dominate dominate monster on it. <laughs> oh yeah, hundred percent of the time. Yeah, yeah. Use a dominate monster on the barbarian. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now he's now he's fighting for you, and you yep. can focus on the on the casters that are gonna make your life miserable if you don't focus on them. Because guess what? They have counter spell. Yeah, <laughs> and counter spell <laughs> is going to mess with you. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there, there's another thing you have to track reactions. Yep. <laughs> Hooray! Uh, so, I, you know, I talk about, I normally do this with pen and paper. Um, I, I've seen where other folks will use, like, a token system where I've got, like, you know, I know that these coins represent this, and I use dimes for this, and I use nickels for this, or, you know, whatever the token might be. But actually having a fiscal system where, you know, for folks who have played, like, magic, the idea of it's like, okay, at the beginning of my round, I do my upkeep step, or do my upkeep step <laughs> at the end. But either way. Um, I think it's, we're I like, think okay. It's the end. Good, perfect. So I move all the tokens back where they started, and then I'm ready to, you know, to start my next full round of combat at the beginning of the, the creature's turn. Um, if you're a person who maybe works better with that physical system, where it's just like, I burn a legendary action, I spend two of my available uh, actions out of my three-action pool, I move two coins over, and then when we're done, we pull them back. Usually when you're playing a game, you have a lot of tokens, you have a lot of spare dice. You could probably put this together. Just don't accidentally pick up your legendary action D4s that you were counting with. <laughs> you know, to, to deal all that sweet, sweet damage. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can use whatever you have handy as tokens. Dice work great. Cause you know, they count up and down numbers, but it, depending on the die, it can also be a huge pain to flip around. Like, all right, where's the next number on this D 20? Why did I use a D 20 instead of a spin down counter? What have I done? Um, a, a standard deck of 52 cards actually works super well as a tracking system. Uh, you have numbers from 1 to 10 for spell slots, so you can be like, okay, this creature has four first level spell slots, here's my ace, 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 ace. Like, you can just lay those out, turn the cards over when you use the slot. Uh, legendary resistances, grab the heart face cards, like jack, queen, king, those are my legendary resistances. Legendary actions, pick another suit. Uh, for your reaction, um, use a joker, why not? Like, just basically establish for yourself, what do each of these cards mean? And then what does it mean when I flip those over? And then at the beginning of the turn, yeah, Randall, like you said, upkeep phase. Like, flip all the legendary actions back up, flip the reaction card over so you're seeing, like, seeing the face. Now you know exactly what's available to you at all times. And you can very quickly say, like, okay, I've got a ton of cards still face up, so I've still got a ton of options for, for my monster. Or, like, I'm, I'm running out of face-up cards, which means... My monster's out of resources. Hit points are getting a little low. Might be time to run away. Yeah, and uh, I think I think that's a great idea, and I think it's useful not just for at-table play. I think it's also useful for, like, if you're playing on virtual tabletops like Roll20. I know for me, like, seeing cards laid out gives you a better frame of reference of what resources you have available more than numbers on a sheet do. 
Um, but I, at the end of the day, it's ultimately what works best for you. Like Randall said, coins work well for him. Uh, cards might work better for you or using dice. I know uh, my DM, Matt, uses dice to track certain things. So it really just depends. But don't not track it. That's the worst <laughs> idea that you can do. Yes. Even just, agree, even, just don't wing it. That's it. <laughs> even just tally marks on a sheet, whatever works, it's, um, that, it, it, it just helps you, like, they, like Randall and um, Tyler have said, especially if, like, you have to take a break because the, the pizza's here or something. Um, and you come back and you're like, wait, where was I? So, yeah. Uh, yes, I was murdering. Ah, yes. I was about to murder you with power word kill. Lovely no murder. save. <laughs> so I, I want to ask a question here. We talk about from time to time, CR in 5e is based on the idea that combat will typically last for three rounds. Uh, so to, to calculate the offensive side of CR, you literally look and say, well, how can I deal the most damage as possible for three turns in a row? Um, a bunch of other math and gobbledygook goes into that, and what comes out is the offensive CR attached to this. I say that to say, for these more complex creatures, or for these complex encounters we might want to build out of less complex creatures, how many rounds of combat is too much? How many rounds of combat like feels good? Because I've, I've definitely been on both sides of that, where I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And then you're, you know, you're 10 rounds into combat, everybody's just like, okay, I hit it with a hammer again, is it dead yet? No, all right, I guess. I think with a lot of things that we've been talking about like lately is uh, it really depends on the monster. Like if it's just, if it's the monsters that move and attack, I would say three rounds is fine. Any more than that is going to be a slog and is going to be pushing it and players are not going to have a good time. If it's a boss encounter, maybe four or five or even six, depending on how challenging you want the encounter to be. Uh, but uh, you just have to keep in mind that you've got to have ways of keeping it tactical, keeping it dynamic. Uh, and one of the ways you can do that is through layer, uh, through layer actions, but not just the ones that are written. Maybe the geography changes in some way, like the boss monster, the, the big bad evil guy slams their staff on the ground and uh, this thing opens up that leads to like, you know, a bottomless pit that is slowly expanding and now the board has changed or something. Um, so, you know, keep things dynamic, especially if you're going past three rounds, because like Randall said, after a while, even the most awesome monster, if you don't change things, it's just going to be like, I hit it. Did it hit? Okay. I deal damage. Is it dead yet? Please be dead. <laughs> and that's yeah. not the reaction you want to have to your big, bad, evil guy. The, yeah, and like, don't just throw your big bad evil guy at them and just be like whack 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 that's not fun yeah, when, the, when the creatures and the uh the characters both kind of just sit down in middle combat and like have a snack it's like all right are you ready to go again no all right 30 more minutes let's wait <laughs> yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay well let, let's flip that on its head uh so sometimes you plan that it's going to be like, I'm worried this is going to be too hard. Like, I'm going to kill them too quickly. What do you think? Like, TPK or will one survive? Who knows? Then you get there and like, this is going terribly. What is happening? <laughs> it's like, I planned contingencies. They have failed. No plan survives contact with the enemy. But yep. at the same time, failure to plan is planning to fail. So, you know, you I'll make write your that plan. down. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm stealing that from Winston Churchill. All I will say is that if you have if you have made contingencies, one uh, statistically one of them is going to work. But if you uh, if the <laughs> dice are against that's a reasonable assumption, no, <laughs> no, How many contingencies but, I mean, have you made? <laughs> I mean, as long as they're different, like let's say, uh, so there's teleport. Obviously, teleport mm-hmm. would work. Uh, I'm just taking this as an example. Teleport, teleport works. Uh, if it doesn't, okay. Uh, invisibility is another way you can get out. Cool. I'll cast invisibility. No, not that either. Uh, how about just good old fashioned disengage and running <laughs> and jumping out a window? <laughs> that didn't work either. So, you know, have, sand. Uh, so <laughs> especially when you're playing a villain, think, put yourself in the mind of the villain. If one of their contingencies fails, if they don't have any more contingencies, they're going to try to find a way to survive. Like people have natural survival instincts. They'll find a way to survive, whether it's by surrendering, maybe if they think that that will work in their favor or something else. But if none of those contingencies work, then you just have to be okay with your villain dying sometimes. That's just the nature of D&D, unfortunately. Okay, wait, wait. It's really funny to hear you say. (laughs) I mean, we we knew the villain was going to die when we wrote the villain, right? Right, but let's say this is before this is before, <laughs> you know, his time. Let's say like, you know, they caught him unawares and you you had this whole epic thing planned for later on when they were going to encounter him in his lair. But okay. they they decided to like let's say they meet him at a ball party or whatever and they immediately become suspicious, corner him in a back room and try to assassinate him. Um sometimes like you do, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm just giving an example, okay? Yeah, but an example of something that literally happened to me. Yeah. Did it? Oh, <laughs> it, if you're going to DM or GM for any length of time, this is going to happen to you. Like I, I've yeah. made this I'd, mistake so many times. I'd like to introduce you to the villain in a social setting and give you one or two fun facts about them. And the party's like, we, I, I, I don't know a lot of things. I don't know how many chairs are in this room. I don't know how many silver goblets I haven't stolen, but I know that I'm going to kill that man. Oh yeah, God. I I have been... Oh, okay, the last long-form campaign I ran for random, This it's been a couple of years at this point, um, I introduced the party to what was going to be the recurring villain for a few levels. Um, he was like a, a chaotic good... Um, agent provocateur, like basically trying to upset the the local power structure, topple the government, all those things. Uh, uh, one of those guys. So I didn't want their first encounter to be violent. I wanted to be like, we're going to meet this guy. We're going to have some very clear philosophical differences and be like, ah, oh, yes, this is this is the character we're going to be working against for a while. And then he was going to disappear, not be seen again for a while. Um, so I introduced them at a like public roadside cafe thing, people walking around, uh, guards very clearly there. Like, like it, it was very like, this is not a good place for violence to happen. Didn't stop them. Uh, they, they immediately murdered him and then disappeared into the night. Like they took the, like, ah, uh, we need an escape plan. Everyone is now invisible. <sighs> yep. Players. That can that can happen and mm. it has happened to me too um but uh and this is a topic that we could probably 
do a whole podcast on. But if you don't want your villains to die before their time, don't put them in front of your players. Yeah. <laughs> very, very thick walls between them. Yeah. Or have them astral project in. Most of my villains, uh, uh, Colby will tell you, most of my villains know astral projection. <laughs> hey, what, what's that you're wearing? Plot armor. <laughs> Weird. All of my players have taken a very specific interest in Githyanki silver swords all of a sudden. <laughs> oh, it's wall of forced monologue. Uh, <laughs> I have a villain. I have a villain monologue that I've been sitting on for months, and you're gonna listen. Damn it! <laughs> it's a magic can, can we roll for initiative yet? Can we roll no. for initiative yet? Can we roll no. for initiative yet? So we say. We say all this. Um, your contingencies will fail eventually. Like no matter how much you plan, you will eventually get yourself into a situation where like. The players have clearly outplayed me or like I, I have overplayed my hand. Um, I have underestimated the situation in which I find myself. So if you as the, the DM GM, um, if you were looking at your creature creatures and saying like, okay, I have these options available to me. I planned all of this out. The plan was good. The plan has failed. All of my options are now bad. Um, you are very reasonably feeling a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of panic, and being like, okay, how do I pull this one out? How do I still make this encounter challenging because my players are, you know, beat, beating me in the face? Uh, if you, as the DM, GM, are freaking out, so are your monsters. Like, I instead of thinking, like, I, I, as the guy running the game, I, as the person running the game, have failed here um think your creatures are having these same feelings like they had the plan they had contingencies they knew the terrain that they were going to be fighting in and they thought this fight was going to go better for them and it's not working out as planned so if you were those creatures what would you do probably freak out mm -hmm. yeah i mean it sounds like we're setting ourselves up for a circle of like the creature blames the DM. The DM blames the creature. There's a lot of finger pointing, a lot of panic. Or you could just do the classic, no, this can't be. What is happening? <laughs> and then the players get to feel heroic for winning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a world. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So like it, it's fine to lose. Like remember, yeah. I mean, obviously it's fine to lose. Like if you're playing D and D, most of the fights the DM runs are losing fights for the DM, and that's very much intentional. Also, something that you have to keep in mind is that even if you think, like, wow, that was a really disappointing fight, and they just completely whomped him, uh, your players might not have seen it that way. For instance, uh, in I'm running an Icewind Dale game. Uh, spoilers for anyone who hasn't played Icewind Dale. Um, there is an early encounter in East Haven uh, in a cave with a frost giant skeleton, as you do for like a first level. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why there's a frost giant skeleton there, but sure. Uh, I think the implication is the players are supposed to run away from it, which is obviously what they try to do. But they ended up corner. They had an ingenious plan. One of the characters had, was a warlock 
with Repelling Blast. And the the exit coming out of uh, the cave where the Frost Giant was, was over uh, a small ledge. So oh. they kept, they Repelling Blasted <laughs> off the ledge, the, but obviously it wasn't enough to, like, you know, take the Frost Giant out. And he was bigger than a ledge. It was only, like, 10 feet. So he would stand up. And they just kept repelling, blasting him. So he could he doesn't really have any ranged attacks. He couldn't get any closer except for his like gaze, which can which almost one shot a player when it finally got off. Um, wow. which was insane. Um that that was the only time I did I kept trying to use it and they kept resisting it until it finally got off and it brought that player like two more hit points and he would have been instantly dead. Um but uh he went unconscious. But the, that was the only thing, that was the only contribution he had to the fight. He didn't do anything else. <laughs> and they killed him. And I was like, wow, that was a disappointing fight. They're like, are you kidding me? That was harrowing. That was a terrifying fight. Like, <laughs> we were on the edge of our seat. And that was awesome. I was like, but he didn't do anything. He's like, they put a guy unconscious. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we were scared for our lives. So it really is just like, as long as you make the creature appear threatening, even if he goes down like a punk, your players might still be like, that was awesome. We found a way to outsmart it. Something that could have been deadly for us was made easier because we were smart. And that can be a victory in and of itself, too. It's like, oh, yes, I see you solved my terrain puzzle I cleverly set up for you. That's what I said. <laughs> I, well, not terrain puzzle. I said, I see you've solved my frost giant skeleton puzzle. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, you shoot the giant off the ledge, you throw the lich in a pool of boiling blood, like yeah. And Obviously, here's the this thing is what I intended the whole time. Yes. And here's clearly. the thing. The the players asked afterwards, they're like, so we level, right? I'm like, no. <laughs> do we do we get any loot? No. <laughs> they're like, why? I was like, because the book has no plan for this. You aren't yeah. supposed to kill it. Like, this wasn't <laughs> supposed to happen. Um, the, like, it doesn't give you treasure for the Frost Giant Skeleton. It doesn't give you experience points. It just says, it, it acts like the players are not going to beat it, which, for any normal players, they probably wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think we ran into that one, Randall, you and I. Do you remember what I took from the frost giant skeleton? Go on. I took its hat. Perfect. It, it was wearing a helmet. I was told that the helmet is too large for you to wear. Well, obviously. But uh, I was very strong and had powerful build, and the helmet was not too heavy for me to carry. So ah. it became combination, like, toboggan, uh, camping tent, trophy. So, I, yeah, I just... I just hauled around a frost giant hat for a while. Yeah, my players took the head and a finger. I don't know why, but they took a finger. <laughs> um, I also just the next session, I felt bad, so I gave them some really weak magic items. I was like, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, everybody gets one ring of disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> a ring of attunement. Uh, it requires attunement to wear, and the benefit of wearing it is you get an extra attunement slot. <laughs> Alright, we do have a question of the week this week. This week, our question of the week comes to us from Ambling Grambler. Love it. I just want to hear you all rag on the anti-RP charisma-based Hexadon player. 
Power game is going to power game by smite botting everything in sight and then both demand a short or even long rest to regain slots wasted on 12 HP creatures and refuse to RP being the party's face despite having the best charisma. This sounds like a very specific scenario. <laughs> yeah, suspiciously specific. Uh, who hurt you, Ambling Grambler? I'm sorry. Um, I will say I do have some sort of experience with this, not with Hexaden. Um, but with uh, a wizard, actually. First game I ever ran was in Fandover, uh, and uh, my one of my players uh, was named Bob the Wizard, and he was the bane of my existence. Uh, he went with the hermit background, and hermits have a revelation, right? And he came up with the idea. He's like, what if I know that I'm in a game? I'm like... Yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. Let's go with it. No, it was a te- it was a terrible idea because he would he would he wasn't interested in talking to the the NPCs. He was only interested in things that would give him experience points. So after a combat, he would he would immediately they would go to a tavern. He would immediately ignore the NPC and say, "I'm gonna go rest now because I got to get my spell slots back." And people are like, "What are spell slots, good sir?" He's like, "I don't care. I'm going to sleep." <laughs> so yeah uh i think with players like that you just have to kind of have a talk with them about like okay so this is the way that i'm running my game if this is not the kind of game that you're into then maybe this isn't the right game for you um it comes down to the murder hobo thing you know players who aren't engaging with your world and just kill things the other way that you can deal with it is also just it find ways to motivate those players Everybody's motivated by something. So if a player is only interested in killing things because they give experience points and you're using experience points, give them experience points for talking to NPCs. Uh, especially give them maybe even more experience points if they do it well, um, which will encourage more RP. Or gold is also a very good motiva- motivator. So give them, <laughs> give them a quest like that... Pay the, pay the player? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, no, no, not pay, the, not pay the player, but like, for instance, in my Icewind Dale campaign, I made the mistake of telling my players that uh, they were abandoned mercenaries. So the idea that they had in their head is like, we're not going to accept any quest unless there's a monetary reward or some sort of reward. Uh, especially since I'm using, I, I found out from my players, like they said to me, since we're doing milestone leveling, I, I'm not motivated to do a thing. Uh, a quest for experience points. So the only way that I can increase my power, especially since it's going to be a while since we level, is through gold or through magic items. And a lot of things in Icewind Dale don't award either of those things. Um, so you just kind of have to find ways to give them a carrot or a stick or something. Um, uh, uh, that's not the only thing that players are motivated by, but that is something that you can work on to get a person who's not interested in RP interested in RP. Okay, I'm going to do my version of ragging. Uh, I want to start with the view assumptions. I'm going to assume that it's a, it's a table of people who want to RP and they really enjoy it and they think it's a vital part of the game. Uh, DM or GM, who's the same storyteller, I guess Hexton, so we're talking about DM in this case, uh, is, you know, is that kind of storyteller. Wants to introduce an NPC, wrote like half a novel, and the only reason they haven't written the other half of the novel is because you haven't killed the NPC yet. They want to see how it ends, <laughs> right? And then I've got this dark and brooding, you know, coming in and... It's like, you know, oh, yeah, I have a lot of charisma, but, you know, I wouldn't talk to anybody with it. I'm just going to sit here and handsome. Uh, 
and and everybody's like yeah but like we're all dum-dums because that's not what we're good at like i'm i'm a wizard and i am great on paper but when i talk to people they hate me (laughs) so the only thing i need you to do is when we go into a bar and we ask for drinks you have to be the person who asks for drinks when we ask like hey I see there's a reward poster. We were kind of hoping to bump this up by like 20%. We we're hoping to negotiate. I, I need you to get out there and do it. Or, and hear me out, uh, you seem to love to threaten things. Except, except, except. When it's actually time to do an intimidation check, then you're like, oh, no, I'm not. No. That's beneath <laughs> me. And you walk away. No, 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 no. You roll the deception checks. You roll the persuasion checks. You roll the intimidation checks. It's the only reason that you are here. You're fine in combat. Like, you're doing great. That's great. But we spend half our time not in combat. We, ha- we spend half our time finding more combat. If you want more combat, I need you to talk to the innkeeper and find out where the goblins are hiding. One thing. One thing. <laughs> or we'll find someone else. <laughs> we'll find another identical hexaden. Into France. You're welcome, man. Blank Rambler. <laughs> you know, once upon a time, before we got the Hexblade, the Sorkadin was the problem. Uh, Paladins would take two levels of Sorcerer so they could, they could get Quantum Magic, melt all those spell slots down into first level slots, and then every attack was a smite. Because, you know, in terms of spell slot usage, first level slot is the most, you know, resource efficient. Now we've got the Hexaden, and you've got the, like, the short rest recharge slots and the charisma to attack and damage with your weapons. And it's basically just, it's easy mode for paladins. It's uh, it is the MSG of class dips. It's like, I could make good food or I could just coat this in MSG. Like, yep. (laughs) MSG is delicious. First of all, I I, look, I didn't say it wasn't. I just said it was cheating. Everybody thinks that human (laughs) fighters are basic. No, no. If you pick a hexaden, you are basic. <laughs> I'm just telling <laughs> you. Fair. It's the new basic now. It, it is very easy. And from an optimization perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Like the mechanics are wonderful. It feels very, very satisfying to build and play. And it's like the numbers are just so good on paper. It's wonderful to look at. But if you're going to take it into a game where role playing matters, even slightly like the hexaden is a little hard to justify it's like okay i've taken an oath to a thing that matters to me so much that it gives me magical powers and then i'm i'm gonna take like a very very small contract with an extra planar murder knife and i'm not gonna let that affect anything about who i am as a person like it it defies belief if you as the player are trying to make this work like Come up with a way to justify it at least a little bit. Like, what is this? What is the murder knife from space offering? What is the hexblade to you? Why has have you taken a contract with it? What are the terms of that contract? Why is it not exclusive? Like, why is why is the hexblade perfectly fine with you still being mostly a paladin, even though you came to it and you're like, I'd like charisma to attack, please. And it's like, fine, okay, but I want this from you and. You know, if you were the DM in that campaign, come up with something to make that matter. Like every once in a while, the hex blade's going to be like, hey, I realize 
that uh, you only took one level of Warlock, but uh, you're level 10 now, and I need some stuff done by a level 10 character, and you're not going to enjoy any of it. All hail the Leisure Illuminati. I'm Randall James. You'll find me at AmateurJack.com and on Twitter and Instagram at JackAmateur. I'm Tyler Campster. You'll find me at RPGBot.net, Facebook and Twitter at RPGBOTDOTNET, and Patreon.com slash RPGBot. I'm Ash Eli. You can follow me on Twitter at Graven Ashes. I'm in the final steps of prepping for a uh, multi-shot, let's say, that I've come up with for uh, start playing uh, games. So once that comes out, I will make an announcement, and you will be able to find me at start playing games. Uh, Ash Eli A S H space E L Y. But I'll make an announcement on Twitter. So the best way to find me is on Twitter. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at RPGBot.net or message us on Twitter at RPGBOT. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll find ad-free podcast episodes, early access to RPGBot.content, polls for future content, and access to the RPGBot.discord. You'll find us at patreon.com slash RPGBot. Oh man, we went this entire thing and I forgot to use my reaction even. What was that? (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. No, Absolutely terrible. No, I think he actually got attacked by something. Oh, did you?